0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that looks at new films in theaters and some older titles that might be tangentially related to them. I'm Stephen Cook, arts writer for Localexpress.ca here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, I'm a film writer and blogger at Flaw in the Iris and today we're going to be looking at some new titles and some old favorites in the world of animation.
1: So, animation is big business in movies, and there are a lot of films mostly aimed at kids. And some of them, as we've learned in recent years, like the Pixar films from Disney are incredible. Most of those, I would say, are, are really, really wonderful films. And occasionally we get ones that are aimed at an, an older audience or a, an adult audience. We got two this week that we're talking about, both of which are unusual in some respects uh Sausage Party and Kubo and the Two Strings they've both both been in cinemas in the past couple of months uh we have seen them and uh yeah Sausage Party is I understand was inspired by Pixar uh Seth Rogen and uh, Jonah Hill and Evan Goldberg getting together and thinking to themselves, you know, Pixar makes these movies where they sort of personify bugs and cars and toys and (laughs) give them personalities. And you see the world from their perspectives. And what if, if you could watch the world from the perspective of food? Uh, you know, and it strikes me, I can't think of another movie where its origins were so the product of what was obviously a an imbibing uh, session where these guys were smoking <laughs> a lot of weed. I mean, you know, what it's hard to know for sure what the truth is with Seth Rogen, but that's certainly the image. And I don't think he does much to uh, downplay the uh the kind of stoner uh, persona that he has, uh, and then we also watch Kubo and the Two Strings, which couldn't be more different—an uh, American film that imagines a sort of fantasy Japanese, uh, uh, fantasy Japanese history uh, about a, a boy who has special gifts that he's inherited from his father. Uh, he plays music and he makes paper dance, and uh, but he is. He, his grandfather and aunts are interested in in uh, in grabbing him, and he's being hidden by his mother. And uh, he has to go on a journey to find his father's weapon and his father's armor in order to protect himself from. His evil relatives. So that's basically the the gist. And sausage party. I didn't really get to the plot of it, but but you know, <laughs> such as it is. Such as it is. It's basically food in a uh, in a grocery store uh, has this idea that when they are purchased by humans, the gods of the piece, they are taken away. Out the door into the great beyond, where they all their dreams come true, including lots of sex, as it it may ha, as it may be. Uh, it's a very it's a very adult film, and uh, and then what they discover is, in fact, they get eaten, and it's it's awful, and so they plot their I guess their their freedom from from the gods, and uh, yeah, it, it's a very strange film that winds up being. Kind of a a criticism of of a uh, fundamentalist religion in some ways. <laughs> yeah, uh, the,
0: now, a left turn you don't really expect a movie about talking food to
1: take. Yeah, sure. exactly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what did you make of the movies? Uh, do we want to talk about one at a time? I suppose we should talk. talk st- I started with Sausage Party. Let's go there first. Let's go there
0: first. Uh, they went there, so we should go there. Uh, yeah, def- definitely inspired by Toy Story and and, and wanting to make uh, like make a Pixar movie, but make it like really earthy and ribald and and uh juvenile at the same time (laughs) and and, you know it it wants to have its cake and eat it too in a lot of ways uh and uh it sure goes for both of those but uh yeah i was reminded of uh, there's there's an old fleischer brothers cartoon i believe uh from the 1930s called the great vegetable mystery where there's a bunch of potato the, the, of course the potatoes are like irish cops and you know so they <laughs> reinforce a lot of stereotypes with food just like they do in uh, sausage party i don't even, i don't know if seth rogan and his his gang saw the film probably the animators might be a little more you know they're probably a little more into the history of cartoons and may have uh, drawn on that for some inspiration but there you know there are uses of, of of kitchen implements as weapons i think they're on the they're trying to hunt down a rat who's like stealing food from the kitchen but of course the coo- the food is all like living and you know personified just like in sausage party uh only it's uh, mercifully over in seven minutes (laughs) as opposed to you know an hour and a half um you know that that's the first thing that came to mind there are also some old warner brothers cartoons where it's like food products on a shelf in a grocery store all come to life after midnight when the store is closed kind of thing And, and so it's sort of another kind of similar setting to uh to sausage party but it definitely goes after the kind of uh celebrity voiced um ambiance of of things like cars and and yeah. toy story um you know uh, first thing I was reminded of i remembered i think it was an old mad t v sketch where they did uh they did sex toy story when the first when the first toy story came out <laughs> and it was you know a very crude sort of stop motion-y animation-y kind of thing inspired by Toy Story except of course there were things like you know vibrators and so on and like and that you know and that was about the same level of humor but again mercifully brief uh, which Sausage Party is not um, there are uh, you know I, I went to this with, uh, with a certain amount of trepidation I think on the power of the talent involved it does succeed on some level yeah um, I would agree with you that you know it's there. there's a high joke per second uh ratio so that, you know, it's, it's entertaining in that regard that there's always something funny happening and you've got people like Seth Rogen and James Franco and, um. Uh, I think Paul Rudd gives a very good voice performance as the disgruntled uh store clerk. Um one of the better voice performances. Uh, Kristen Wiig I think is a hot dog bun that yeah, uh, the, she's pretty the the hot dogs all want to get into uh as it were and uh but but she actually keeps it fairly grounded as her character at least until the final scenes. Uh or just was completely haywire. Um and uh but the, they get to play around with ethno- st- ethnic stereotypes and Yeah and, through and, through and the, the owns, food like the they food. of
1: course they have the uh the um uh yeah the the taco is is played by Salma Hayek of course yeah. and uh, you know and some of that I think is a little too easy a little too obvious and, a, and oh a little for tired. sure like I, I was just like oh, really this is the way they're going with this okay I'll, you, know, you know a bagel that
0: sounds like Woody Allen yeah <laughs> yeah
1: and like I like, but but when it gets into cultural or I should say like religion when it when they just when they try to to skewer the the differences between uh the sort of Jewish, Israeli, uh, you know, uh, and faith and then the Palestinians. And, yeah. and that stuff I actually had some time for because I felt like, oh, you can actually make some points with our reasonable in this very silly sort of environment. I mean, it's it's such a fraught conversation that, that to do it in this way seems actually, it makes a certain kind of sense. But yeah, but then there were other stuff that f- felt really obvious and and painfully so. Like you're not bringing much to, to a, a conversation about stereotypes. When you when you you create, you know, you give fire water uh, the bottle of, of fire water, <laughs> a, a Native American accent. And and I, yeah, I was just a little bit like with like, the really?
0: peace pipe. And yeah, yeah
1: uh, I just that 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 was pretty tiresome for me. I think overall, I appreciate the inspiration that went into this and the fact that the <laughs> these guys are now in a place in their careers these these celebrities i mean seth a places in his career where he can get this made which is shocking <laughs> to me that it actually exists in some ways it seems to me that's been the theme of this year there have been a movies a bunch of movies come out i just can't believe they actually got made but but i i'm going along with it because because at least there's some there is some stuff here that's original the the inspiration is original even if the execution in
0: some ways feels a little tired yeah this would be high on the list of like of really a bunch of people like hundreds of adults got together <laughs> cuz you think about the amount of work that goes into making an animated film and it's it's no small task to to you know even though computers have made things easier and easier and there're more and more programs for rendering and and generating movement and all that kind of thing it's still a fairly herculean herculean task to uh to actually put one of these films together and, and, and it's expensive too and uh so to I- exactly so uh although you know I, i'm sure a lot of the work was done overseas uh, to, for the final kind of rendering and, and actual animation and that kind of thing a lot of that work gets done in korea and india at a fraction of the cost i'm sure these days um and uh you know the, so so this is this this film is definitely a mixed blessing i You know, as much as I appreciate adult humor and and risque humor, I felt, uh, you know, like I'm guessing when they were recording the vocal tracks, people were encouraged to swear as much as possible, uh, which, you know, they should have had a tighter rein on that. But unfortunately, the power of profanity lies in its... Uh, subtle use rather yes. than, than it's excessive use because yeah, then it just be, you become numb to it and it doesn't have any impact at all and and in fact the food swears all the time sometimes for no reason the, yeah. The, the just, yeah, that's just interject a, an F word here or whatever um, you know I, I certainly have no problem with profanity but uh, it's it's got to be used cleverly yes which it is not here
1: yeah and i would say that the thing about the film yeah i totally agree on that front but the the film the thing about the film that i probably enjoyed the most was a, and without giving too much away because this happens late in the running a, a sex scene that the likes of which i don't think i've ever even imagined let alone could imagine could just like it's it's shockingly funny by virtue of it's just <laughs> just yeah. what's going on in it and and then uh and, and of course it did remind me a little bit of a sex scene in uh in Team America. exactly. Yeah. You okay. know, it's like we're going to we're going to do an animated sex scene like let's go to town with this. Let's let's really go places and uh and I have to say that uh, that I, I <laughs> this may be uh revealing a little too much about myself, but I really enjoyed it. I thought it was hilarious.
0: It's well, just a uh, just the sheer scale of it,
1: I guess. But I mean, <laughs> yeah.
0: it, like you're, I, I'm in the same boat. It reminded me of the puppet scene in uh, team America, which I guess is extended on the, the DVD version, um, to even greater heights. And I just felt that, you know, I felt that, you know, that it just kind of did the same thing only with food instead of puppets. But, but you know, there are, you know, every imaginable variation is, uh, is thrown in there. So I, you know, I guess there's some, a certain amount of hoods, <laughs> required to, to, to go there. But, um, uh, you know, the the fact that it did remind me so much, but it, was, it, it had been building to that all along, so yes, yes, I guess it was ine- inevitable that uh, that it would happen in uh, at the end of um, Sausage Party, especially you know, given the the name of the film and the, the post the poster <laughs> yeah. art and yeah, just the the weirdly unrepressed libidos of all the food items. <laughs> through, through the film. My, yeah. my one of my thoughts about the film was that, geez, they never nobody mentions you know, like the the um the butcher section. I mean, obviously there must be screams and, you know, things coming from that direction. Yeah. They,
1: there was, there was some conveniences around the world (laughs) that they create here that they don't quite address. Yeah, Yeah. That's
0: like some other country far off in the, the, corners of the supermarket that none of the food appears yeah. to be aware like, of.
1: Like recently, Zootopia, otherwise known as Zootropolis in Europe, uh, the, has this, this utopian view of animals all living together. What do they eat aside from popsicles? This is not something that is particularly well addressed in the film. And it's funny how these movies create these worlds and then just kind of look away from,
0: from real life kind of applications, right? Well, you know, I guess if, you, know, you can go back to Mickey Mouse having a dog. And Mickey being bigger than the dog, he's a mouse. Why is the yeah, dog? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of scale are we working with? There's there?
1: an internal logic, I suppose, yeah, you, but it, you
0: just got to ignore certain things. I, I think in Zootopia slash Zootropolis, I think they vaguely pay play lip pay lip service to. the, the fact that they've gotten their predator instinct out of their system or something right. like that there's a brief mention of it early on just to kind of get it out of the way but uh so then you know, they're all they're all vegans or, or or vegetarians i guess i guess so i guess uh i guess yeah. they've perfected the art of animals making tofu or something like that yeah and, uh they don't <laughs> you know, there's like some horrible horrible farm hidden away in the corner <laughs> of zoo you know with, with talking animals being yeah. slaughtered that they don't want to show um but yeah, I mean, you know, Sausage Party, you know, obviously they were inspired by some previous adult films of the past. You know, Fritz the Cat is the one that always comes to mind, mm-hmm. you know, from the 70s. It was uh, Ralph Bakshi, um, you know, who'd been toiling away in low-budget TV animation, things like the Spider-Man TV series from the 60s. You know, the one with the groovy theme song. Sure, I love it. That, that was uh, made in Canada. Um or Bakshi came in on the second season and, and, and wrote all these kind of, and directed all these kind of LSD inspired episodes where <laughs> Spider-Man's in outer space. And we're not sure what his webs are swinging from, but yeah. And the it, backgrounds are all
1: this like, you know, yeah groovy, groovy visuals,
0: but he's not like a desolate planet swinging along from what there's nothing, there's <laughs> yeah. nothing above him to swing from, but we uh-huh. just suspension of disbelief, literally suspension, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and disbelief. Um, you know so he took the Robert Crumb comic strip Fritz the Cat and kind of turned it into this shockingly depressing feature film I you know I go back to Fritz the Cat and and I every once in a while I kind of get the urge to watch it and I forget how depressing it is it's a really it just gets really dark and dank and um you know the the drug culture aspect to it which is just kind of a complete bummer um and then there's a sequel which uh, is even worse uh which inspired crumb to just kill off the character in comic book form because he didn't want anything to do with the cinematic version of it um you know that's kind of ground zero for these kind of films and that you know ba- i mean back she kept returning to adult themes of, of of racism and cross-cultural um uh pollination as it were and 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 uh you know, eventually like settling on his version of Lord of the Rings, which kind of, in a way, kind of ruined him because he, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't finish it. Right. Um, you know, and that kind of made him kind of an outcast for the rest of his career, aside from an awesome Mighty Mouse series that that he managed to get on the air with the help of uh, Ren and Stimpy's John Chris Valucci, Of course, he hadn't created Ren and Stimpy yet, but, uh, you know, that's that's the kind of sensibility that uh, that I think Sausage Party wants to be related to, but, at the same time, that the it's it, if it had been maybe a shade less juvenile, that's the thing. I feel with, like I mean, it could have guys, been a little more successful. That's what their humor is. A lot
1: of it is about. But I still have time for them. I mean, uh, the their apocalyptic movie. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, uh, the end. This is the end of the, the end. Uh, it uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, some of, there's a lot of their humor that I do appreciate, but. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, I feel like this isn't a movie that I'll likely revisit. So, yeah, the other film that we want to talk about, Kubo and the Two Strings, this is a film from Laika, which is an American animation company that has uh, a great, actually a great record of quality films. Uh, this is a 3D stop motion uh, film, uh, animated, and it is set in sort of a fantasy version of a feudal Japan. And it's about a boy who who uh, who has these special gifts. He, he can he can animate through through music. He plays this sort of this uh, two stringed or three string guitar, and uh, and he he uh, he creates uh, uh, little animations that amuse the the village uh, from from paper from. Uh, and, and the da- dance for the village, but this, uh, but he actually has m- greater abilities uh, that that need to that are are uh, and he be, becomes he becomes hunted by his relatives, uh, though his mother has been trying to protect him, and he goes on a on a journey, and he's joined by a giant scarab played by Matthew McConaughey or voiced by Matthew McConaughey and uh, a monkey. Uh, voiced by Charlize Theron. And it is a a really beautiful looking film. It's beautifully composed. It has wonderful uh, moments of grace that uh, I wasn't expecting. uh, And I I do believe it's mostly aimed for a younger audience, but I think any age, people of any age could enjoy it. Uh, Now, at the same time, the reviews for the film have been glowing, and I understand why because it's clearly well crafted and a and a, a a fantasy that that deals with some fairly melancholy and in, and real life uh, applications of, of uh, loss and uh, and heritage. I I really like the film and I would recommend it to anyone who's interested in animation. But I also recognize that when you and I went to see it, Stephen, we had a t- tough time staying awake. And you know what? <laughs> I got to admit that. Uh, I think that uh, that you can still be recommending a film, but also own up to the fact that that we both struggled due to the pacing. And and you and I aren't people that generally fall asleep in movies. No. So so that's I think a real mark against it. It's it's
0: a bit lugubrious. Yes, I, I think. Um... I think maybe uh, some younger kids might have a problem with it, but they might get totally absorbed absorbed by it. You don't know. Um, You know, we we keep hearing that this is the the short attention span generation, but maybe exposing them to more films like this is a way to kind of help curb that.
1: Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And, you know, we we saw a bunch of trailers in advance of Kubo and the Two Strings, and uh, the trailers were that typical caffeinated, like hyper-edited uh, animation and it was they were really headache-inducing, uh, and then this film comes on and it's lovely and it's pastoral and and I, I felt very very engaged by it in some ways and yet in other ways I felt like I was uh, my patience was a little tested so I have to admit that but uh, but yeah I still say this is a film I think people will enjoy
0: yeah I remember that we saw a trailer for uh, some new version of Robinson Crusoe yeah it just opened the
1: wildlife yeah it's yeah. playing
0: here it, I I suspect it's like a weird European production it is um and it looked kind of cheap it looked like that kind of cheap formulaic computer animation it's all done with like templates and and (laughs) that sort of thing like almost like the kind of like the flash animated kid shows that you kept seeing everywhere that were just you know made on a shoestring budget um many of them right here in lfx um but uh you know, you know they they fill a need and and uh, there's an endless need for new programming. But in the theater, you you want something that's going to be unique, It's going to stand out, it's going to stand the test of time. That did not look like something you needed to see in a theater. Um, as much as I like the idea of cute animated parrots and everything, yes. I, I'm not going to go out of my way to see the wildlife. I don't think. Um, no, but Kubo and the Two Strings definitely benefited from the theater. Exactly. Experience. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it. it I I think that uh, Laika definitely tries to get away from that sort of hyperactive um you know seizure inducing kind of uh appro- approach to uh to animated films uh they want to create a world that you feel like you're you're living in this world I mean I was quite taken by Coraline that's a film I've watched a, a few times yeah the s- Neil Gaiman story sure um you know a Paranorman uh was fine I don't have a real strong urge to return to that and I haven't seen the box trolls but uh I I hear you know the, the kind of storybook quality of that and the kind of underground world that it creates is, is pretty fascinating. So that's, it's definitely high on my list of, of, uh, animated titles I want to catch up with.
1: Yeah. I haven't seen that either. I, 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 uh, but yes, these guys definitely know what they're doing. And, uh, but you know, watching this film and watching sausage party basically as the point of our, our mandate for our podcast, trying to think <laughs> about films that we loved, uh, and, and maybe that people haven't haven't seen before and I went back into sort of my mental archive and uh, I realized that a lot of the movies that the animated material that I loved when I was a kid was from television I wasn't there aren't a lot of movies I would necessarily say animated movies from that from there my my youth that I would say people should definitely see I've got a short list here but you know uh, Disney had an impact, though not a huge one on me. I think The Jungle Book was maybe the movie that I liked the most, but that was largely due to the music, which I really connected with. Uh, but on, on television, there was the Saturday morning cartoons. There was, you know, the Star Blazers and Battle of the Planets, uh, both of which were, uh, you know, uh, translated into English from the Japanese Godzilla, from the Godzilla with Godzuki of the late 70s. Uh, <laughs> and
0: Godzuki.
1: yeah yeah yeah, which in retrospect is pretty awful uh (laughs) the animated star trek um you know looney tunes was huge though for me that those i could watch those till the cows come home i watch i loved looney tunes and what the the one you mentioned earlier spider-man was was really big in my
0: youth yeah you had no idea how bad spider-man was and and actually the before spider-man there was the mary marvel marching society where they had it was basically like a, all the Marvel superheroes in these kind of short vignettes that to call it animated is being generous because most of the time they were just kind of moving still pictures. Often Jack Kirby artwork being used without any um, recognition of his contribution. and I'm sure he got no money for it, but they were using like his drawings and they would just kind of move them around. I'm sure it was animated in the sense that they were moving them around the animation table with the camera, but, but. You know the the amount of actual movement, you know, aside from the odd eye blink and the mouth being partially open, there's, there's very little animation involved. But they're kind of charming. They have great theme songs, you know, when Captain America throws his mighty shield and so on. But that you know, t- TV animation was uh, almost like a huckster's game, like yeah. <laughs> just trying to get stuff on the air with the, the least amount of money spent upon it. And uh, you know, that was definitely a show that uh, that fell into that bill. And obviously, Hanna Barbera came out of like the full animation of you know, mgm studios and the tom and jerry cartoons that they worked on and they kind of raised the bar a little bit um for tv animation but they were still recycling a lot of footage and you know like using those backgrounds where you just keep seeing the same painting go past yeah. if somebody's sure. running down a hallway and that kind of thing like it was definitely being made on the cheap but they invested a lot in character design and voice work and like tried to find the, the the how they could cut corners and still make a memorable cartoon. Yeah, and,
1: and Foley and all the sound effects are a lot of what really
0: uh, impacts make those those cartoons have an impact. Yeah, for sure. And and uh, my favorite example is probably Rocky and Bullwinkle, where the animation is is limited at best, but they put a lot of effort and a lot of humor into the writing um, and the voice work. Of course, you know everybody can do a Bullwinkle impression. Uh, you know, Rocky, just do, hey, Rocky. Um, you know, Bullwinkle just kind of talk from the back of your throat, hey, Rocky, watch you pull a rabbit out of my hat. Um, that's pretty good, man. Nothing to believe, <laughs> <brittle."> Um, <laughs> so, uh, but you know, they were so funny, and the jokes went over my head in such a major way. Like it's so fun to go back and rewatch Rocky and Bullwinkle now and see all the jokes made about like the communist witch hunts. Mm-hmm. You know, like you know. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing where, uh, Bullwinkle wants to be a great actor like Marlon Branflake in a trolley named Tallulah, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, like, I, I don't even know that I knew who Marlon Brando was when I watched that cartoon and certainly, you know, a streetcar named Desire is a trolley named Tallulah. Certainly. And I, I never got that joke, but, um, you know, and there were jokes at you know, poking fun at Elvis and. Uh, you know the space race, and and, and certainly Boris and, and Natasha were part of that whole mm. Cold War uh, kind of thing. So there's some really clever subversive humor happening on Saturday morning TV, if you knew where to look for it. Anyway, um, you know, and that, you know, like the LSD inspired Spider Man episodes, yes. you know that was going on as well. But um, you know, I quickly I quickly learned the difference between good animation and you know, rock bottom TV animation, uh, when my parents started taking me to see the Disney movies. Now, um, I'm of the generation that, uh, st- I still remember when Disney would reintroduce before home video, uh, instead of locking things away in the Disney vault or whatever, um, they would reintroduce their classics like every seven years they'd reissue, you know, uh, Snow White or Cinderella or Fantasia even. Um, uh, and, uh, in fact, the Jungle Book, uh, was, uh, was my very first movie ever that I ever got to see in a theater. Uh, apparently it would have been Peter Pan, but I was being bad that day I'm told, and I didn't get to go to the movies that day, but I did get to see Jungle Book and I had the record and I had the wallpaper even. Now this is when I'm about four years old at this point. Uh, and, uh, but I'm totally into Jungle Book. I knew all the songs off by heart, you know, on my little kitty record player. And I, I distinctly remember having all the characters on my wall, um, of our house in Ottawa at the time. And, uh, and it just, uh, that made a big impact on me just the, the, you know, just seemed like the, the vocal performances were, were so much more vivid. Uh, you know, everything about it was a more immersive experience than the stuff that I had been watching on television. Um, and then at some point shortly after that, I think I saw Yellow Submarine, which, uh, you know, most of that would have gone completely over my head. You know, I wasn't all that up on uh, LSD culture, <laughs> you know, when I was seven or eight years old, but, um. You know, that had a big impact on me and introduced me to the music of the Beatles. And I guess that would have been my first kind of counterculture um, experience at, at a young, young age. Um, and that led me to a curiosity about music. And, uh, you know, and that film, I think, still stands up really well. I mean, it's obviously very dated, it's in that faux Peter Max late 60s style, but there's a lot to like about it in the way they kind of bring it to life. Um, again, that film isn't as, uh, it, it's still kind of limited in a way, but they just barrage you with images and, and color, like you just kind of succumb to the, to the, this kind of psychedelic, uh, uh, Lucy in the sky with diamonds <laughs> kind of environment that they plunge you into with that film. So, um, you know, an- animation was a big thing for me in, in the early years. And you mentioned Looney Tunes. I mean, I, you know, I had entire cartoons memorized by the, you know, by the time I, I was seven or eight from just constant viewing of the the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show. And then it wasn't until years later that I realized there's a whole other era of Looney Tunes that predate those cartoons because, there was a split, uh, the Warner brothers sold off all of its pre 1948 catalog, um, for, for TV viewing or whatever. They sold it all off. So those cartoons made before the later Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling ones had all been kind of in a bit of a limbo. And then, uh, MGM got the rights to those and they started reissuing them. And I, they were way crazier than the ones I was used to seeing. Like even ones with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny in them at, um, uh, so they're familiar characters, but acting completely like loonier, for lack of a better word. And and that stuff, uh, you know, that was an eye-opening experience to see these different iterations by people, directors like Tex Avery and Bob Clampett, who'd left the studio by the time uh, that split between the in the catalog took place. Um, you know, so I recommend seeking out the work of those guys as well as the more familiar Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling ones. And, uh, you know, the uninhibited, uh, free-spirited and, just crazy style of those cartoons uh, really opened me up to wanting to seek out more stuff that was uh, a little more on the edge. Right, yeah, and I I, I really
1: uh, connect with what you're saying about, uh, about music being such a big part of it. Uh, it felt like, in some ways, music could be a uh, a gateway to animation, but animation, I think for me, (laughs) served as a gateway uh, drug to music. Certainly uh, much of any appreciation I have for classical music or for opera comes from Looney Tunes. And uh, I I don't know which came first in this next example I'm going to offer up, but uh, I think I was just becoming, I was a teenager and just becoming a metal fan when I first saw heavy metal the uh, animated version of the uh, a metal Erlant, the uh, the french you know translated to english magazine science fiction and uh, some adult content there certainly the the animated film uh, channeled some of that adult content uh funny how canadian that film was all <laughs> these canadian voices in it yeah I think, uh, didn't
0: ivan reitman produce it yeah
1: and... yeah and uh, uh it was uh credited as a screenwriter is uh, dan o'bannon who of course is well known for his work uh with alien uh now it is a movie that uh, came out in 1981 and uh i loved it as a teenager and watched it many times i think i had an old you know uh, quickly wearing out a VHS copy of it. and uh, for lots of reasons that would be obvious to anyone who knows what teenagers are into. Um, but the sci-fi combined with sex, combined with uh, heavy metal music, uh, some of it sort of very 80s, some of it, you know, uh, better than, than others. Uh, but it really was just – it was a totally potent film for me at the time. And I, remember, I actually have pretty distinct memories of, of bringing it with me to my undergrad – and introducing it to another friend of mine at, at college in, in my university days in Toronto and uh, he had never seen it before and I was like oh it's so great the music's really fun and he was not into metal music He and he was just a little older than I was and, uh, and about halfway through he's like was this written by 12 year olds <laughs> you know which I think is a fair comment but at the time I was like what are you talking about this is for this is mature this is for adults and I was like wait a second maybe he's right maybe this is totally <laughs> juvenile uh, but but uh, but it's actually a lot of fun, and I still have uh, a soft spot for heavy metal.
0: Yeah, it kind of. Well, y- you mentioned the, the 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 magazine that, of course, inspired it, and of course, there were Ralph Bakshi did some uh, fantasy films like Wizards and Fire and Ice that I think also kind of paved the way for this film. Yeah, definitely. Um, I never. It's funny. It, it is called Heavy Metal. I don't think of much of the music in it as being actually heavy metal. I not mean, not genuine hard metal. It's more um, hard rock, I guess. Yeah. I mean. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who who did the, who did the theme song is it, it's not like um Oh it was uh, the Sammy Hagar. Sammy Hagar. Yeah, right. Yeah. And uh isn't one of the Eagles do a song or Glenn Frey Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don 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 Don, Don, Don uh, Felder? That's it, that's it. Yeah. And um I think isn't Devo's working in a coal mine in there Yeah, it's true. He well, so it, it made it we, in there as well. Um you know, so it's 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 a fun musical snapshot at the time yeah the black sabbath is in there as with the mob rules Oh, okay is, fair enough you know that qualifies i think like that gets it under the wire I yeah think. um <laughs> yeah this was the, yeah this became kind of like a midnight movie kind of thing almost i think most of the cast members of sctv yeah two uh, voices at one time i think yeah john, john candy eugene levy joe Flaherty, harold ramus uh and john vernon and al waxman are yeah. also in there isn't andrea martin on there too or maybe uh, i'm just imagining i might she's... just be imagining that okay <laughs> it's 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 not uh there aren't a lot of strong female uh roles uh in this film as i recall but yeah. um, i think there's like a valkyrie-esque character at the end Yeah, she's along, on the, the she's, she's was, on the poster she's kind yeah. of like the the icon for the film but um you know it it, 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 it was kind of aimed squarely at like 14 year old boys probably think. why i liked it so much at that age yeah but in fact wasn't it penthouse that uh introduced it to uh to north america is it weren't they the publisher of the North American version of this? I'm trying uh, to remember how. it worked. Yeah, I, I am too. I don't. I don't recall. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember that. Remember reading the odd issue. Richard Corbin, I think, was one of the major yeah. artists who I kind of liked his style quite a bit, and one of his major characters uh, is, forms one of the main storylines in this film. Yeah, Den. And Den. Um, and then there was a sequel. Was it Heavy Metal 2000? Yeah, which I never saw. Yeah, I, no, it was. The reviews were awful, but
1: uh, you know, I, I can understand those who can 't get with the original too because of its of a juvenile <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I just it happened to me at the right time, oh sure, and especially with my my fan my my growing interest in music it, it delivered a lot of that for me uh, but yeah it's uh it's funny that some of these these things they still hold up and some do not in a lot a lot of ways and in the nineties uh you know I was a latecomer to studio Ghibli but uh but uh, mostly, I think my, my way into their work was Princess Mononoke, which wasn't until 97. Uh, and I'm not sure if that was the year that it actually got translated into English or not. But, uh, but since then, I've gone back, and of course, I've discovered a lot of those. And of course, Japanese animation and anime has, was big, uh, you know, with Akira. Akira was huge for me. I loved Akira.
0: Oh, yeah, seeing that on the big screen for the first time was revelatory. And, and I think that was my first major uh reintroduction to anime because i i had grown up with uh uh battle of the planets yeah me too sure and i can't remember what the japanese title of that series was and i guess it was the stories were altered considerably for the north american tv version as well as star blazers you know, right. sp- spaceship yamoto and uh i'm trying to remember the name of the is it the gamelan empire what the evil empire they were combating um in a far off uh galaxy or whatever but um you know, so I, I became familiar, and then, of course, Astro Boy before that. So I was, I was familiar with the style, but, I, you know, in my mind, I saw it as being this kind of cheap, badly done animation, but with a very distinct visual sense, but also done on the, on the cheap for television. And then I saw Akira, and some of, the, some of that style hasn't changed, but, of course, with a higher budget and a, and a more uh, grandiose, again, apocalyptic uh, storyline... Uh, you know, just kind of kind of blew minds all over the place. And I had not read the uh, the Akira uh, manga at that point. I later went on to collect like a bound volumes of it, um, and then really get into the story. And I was really curious about the differences between the the written version and the film version, um, you know, of which the, which are numerous. I think the, the the book continues after the events that are uh, shown in the film, but uh, you know, it just was this whole other world of of. Uh, of action and, and use of space and motion and uh you know i, I kind of wonder well, when are north american films going to you know cotton on to you know these kind of themes it does not necessarily be more adult but it you know it could be a little less fairy tale because that was kind of the disney trap was that you know they most of the films with the exceptions of a few things like 101 dalmatians maybe and and uh, even the rescuers is based on a on a children's book but uh you know there was real potential for uh, for something uh, a little broader, a little more adult. Uh, the Black Cauldron was an attempt by Disney to, to to do that, but of course they had to stick a talking pig in there just <laughs> to make it a little more kid friendly. And uh, you know, I, I, it definitely started me on the path of looking in different places to find uh, diff- a different kind of imagination in animation on the big screen.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I, I remember thinking to myself, well, this is going to start something awesome, and we did get more anime coming through. As I mentioned, uh, the uh, uh, the Studio Ghibli stuff started to make its way over, and and uh, but but it never quite caught on here in a broad way, uh, though. Though I think on television it you know things like uh, Sailor Moon became you know a whole new generation especially of girls and women got into that and that that has changed the culture in North America extraordinarily uh in the years
0: since and of course Pokemon yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> let's not neglect them yeah
1: let's not neglect them but uh but yeah i definitely i read a bunch of the stuff the comic book stuff that got uh Got translated from uh, from Japanese. Uh, Appleseed, for instance, uh, G- Ghost in the Shell, uh, which of course was a terrific animated a- anime film that that was translated as well. So so there was stuff happening, but uh, but yeah, at the same time, you know, television was probably still my main channel for for uh, animation. Simpsons and Ren and Stimpy, and Futurama, and then eventually South Park, all of which uh, sort of. It climbed into my head at that time, and then you know, and the Pixar was dominating every every film Pixar came out with through the '90s. seemed better than the last one. It was amazing their their stretch of quality going into the '2000s uh, is is just jaw dropping. How impressive they were. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of the Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and
0: Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you before we move on and, and i just want to mention one uh, because, because we're always encouraging people to look for things that are a little lot the beaten path um of course any any fan of, of japanese animation will probably just go well of course i know about that film and of course you probably do um uh i just wanted to mention uh a film called uh metropolis which of course it instantly uh, if, if you know anything about film you think of the fritz lang anime uh, not animated but silent uh screen epic uh One of the last things he did before he fled Germany uh, in the late 1920s, uh, you know, the great sort of humanistic sci-fi art deco epic uh, about man versus machine and all that kind of thing. So this, uh, this is a weird hybrid that was thought up years before. By uh, Osamu Tezuka, the creator of Astro Boy, um, who died before uh, he saw his uh, vision reach the screen. I believe there was a comic book version of it. But in 2001, um, director Rintaro, who had worked primarily in the TV realm, I believe, uh, I think Captain Harlock, was, uh, which would be like the third major uh animated Japanese show to get imported in the 1970s but you know he's a striking space pirate with the eye patch and all that. Um, Rintaro uh, who was friends with Tezuka wanted to bring this uh, epic story to the screen and the weird thing about it is it's kind of half the Fritz Lang movie in animated form but then there's like this whole other thing involving a young again robot boy. Tezuka kind of uh, I guess knew his niche um, who, who kind of Brings this uh, giant futuristic city together and then threatens to tear it apart. And uh, it's, it, I don't know why it stands out for me. I mean, any number of Studio Ghibli films. I could talk about Princess Mononoke as a favorite. Um, I got into it with My Neighbor Totoro. Sure. Which... Um, also a great one. Which kind of like the breakthrough for that studio in terms of uh, the North American market. Mm-hmm. And then... And uh, I also like Spirited Away and, and Nausicaä The Valley of the Wind. Yeah. Spirited Away might be my favorite of the bunch because I see new stuff in it every time I, I watch yeah. it. I, I don't return... It's the one I'm more likely to return to just because I know that there's certain things about it I still don't understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well, I, it feels like it's based on a whole mythology that we don't, we aren't familiar with. So. Yeah. So so that's that's the one I'm more curious to see. Although I, as much as I love Totoro and Mononoke uh, and even some of the later films that are a little less focused, but, uh, you know, maybe more whimsical or what have you, like Ponyo, um, those are a lot of fun. But, but Spirit Away seems to have a lot more going on. That, uh, I feel like I need to get to the bottom of, but Metropolis just kind of stands out because it's, it's not, um, it doesn't really fit a, a formula like the other films. It doesn't have a studio style to it as much. Um, it does have weird elements of kind of the Astro Boy, more kind of cartoony look to it, but then it's got this uh, beautifully designed futuristic city. But it's S- not city a, it's not it. a Ghibli film though. Is no, it? not no. at all. Okay. It's kind of more of a kind of like an independent thing. Gotcha. Um, you know, but but again, the same the same goes for I guess Ghost in the Shell, which is kind of a standalone sort sure. of thing. Um, and actually, uh, you know, the division speaking of the division between TV and film, there's uh, Cowboy Bebop, which is a series that uh, a friend of mine got me into, and I really enjoyed it. And there was a feature film uh, that kind of follows up the events of the TV series. You know, and again, it's a little more cinematic, a little bigger budget. Um, but music plays a big part in that. Uh, we've got these kind of uh, space renegade space pirates who are also kind of cool and jazzy right. and, and that sort of thing so um and there's a cute corgi on board so so that's that's worth looking into if you're looking for because it's you know if if you've thought oh, i'd like to watch some uh some anime but there's so much of it out there and it mm. just seems like a kind of a minefield because a lot of it is not very good and a lot of it's fantastic and and then there's like the weird sexual stuff which is really off-putting <laughs> uh you know it's kind of fascinating to watch but at the same time you're kind of like I'm not really enjoying this. I'm just kind of...
1: Yeah, the tentacles, <laughs> the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, very
0: odd. And I think it... Or it took a doji and the blue girl and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that out
1: there. Uh, now, uh, my memory, casting it back to uh, animated films that I enjoyed... Uh, Also, incidentally, involving robots, uh, is The (laughs) Iron Giant, it came to mind. Now, this is a film that when it came out in 97, directed by Brad Bird, who's gone on to do other films, both live action uh, and animation, but... uh, he is, uh, this has kind of become a classic and it's really wonderful that it's been recognized because at the time it kind of came and went, but on other platforms, on DVD, it's, uh, it's. And I keep seeing it re- get re-showed again and again and, and people have discovered it over the years and in in it's almost 20 years since it's been released and uh, it's a wonderful film. It's uh, set in 1957 in the height of the space race and it's kind of an existential drama for this giant robot who needs to figure out. Whether or not he's a friend, uh, like a like a, a a living thing, a friend to the boy in the film, or whether or not he's really his a weapon, and he had kind of this crisis point where he has to decide for himself whether he's one or the other, and uh, it's it's a great story, a lot of classic touches, and and uh, I would say that uh, that you know I guess maybe most fame famed famous character voice in the film is vin diesel as the voice of the robot That's right. who and diesel has done other voice work since i guess he's his you know deep baritone is uh is well suited for this kind of material but it's a if you haven't seen it the iron giant's lovely
0: yeah brad bird is just kind of a genius when it comes to storytelling and doesn't and it doesn't really matter what the format i mean you think of the incredibles mm-hmm. you know his his team up with pixar is is a film that uh i feel like has gotten a little underappreciated in recent years, but, uh, you know, it seems to have formed the template for like how the, the Marvel universe films feel like they're borrowing a lot from the Incredibles.
1: Yeah. And, and in fact, uh, the Incredibles, which at the time was like, Oh, it's just like the fantastic four, a family of superheroes. Uh, then they've, they've really, you know, been unable to create an actual fantastic four. That's anywhere near as good.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't know why they, they, they failed to do that, but yeah, but, um, (laughs) You know, Brad poured his love of vintage Marvel comics into The Incredibles, and and uh, it really shows. That's that's actually one I feel like I need to return to.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of Pixar that I should. I'd love to go back to. I mean, you know, but
0: it's. I don't want to get into it too much here because they are so beloved. Yeah, people and know so them. so talked about. I mean, yeah. the one I keep thinking about is Up. I mean, yes. of all them, although um, the. Uh, the The recent one, getting inside a teenage girl, Inside Out, yeah. uh, I thought was a pretty bold uh, movie, and it yeah, it, it, it paid off. I you know I, I saw it you know on its opening weekend. I thought, how is this going to play with younger audiences? Because it's dealing with some pretty deep concepts in terms of a young girl's psyche and and uh, you know uh, coming to terms with with um, adulthood and, and and family trauma and all that kind of thing. And and uh, you know kids can adapt to a lot more. I mean, you know, if I can watch Yellow Submarine. It, at six or seven or eight or whatever it was, you know, certainly kids today can can get into Inside Out and and either grasp the concepts right away or get into it with repeated viewing, which is usually how they they tend to view things. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think that's great. I certainly think it's much more worth getting into than Cars, for instance. Which, although Cars looked beautiful, the animation was top notch. The story felt very kind of rote. Um, so yeah, but um, I also wanted to mention before we get too far into Mm -hmm. the present. Let's talk about bicycles, not cars. (laughs) Is The Triplets of Belleville, which is uh, from 2003, uh, directed by Sylvain Chaumet. And uh, it's a wonderful film that really shows off its sort of international pedigree. Uh, It tells the story of an elderly woman, Madame Souza, who goes on a quest to rescue her grandson, uh, who is a Tour de France cyclist? He's been the grandson's been kidnapped by the French mafia uh, due to some reasons of gambling, and uh, been taken to the city of Belleville, which is kind of a uh, uh, New York, Montreal, Quebec City amalgam. And uh, uh, now this this Madame Souza is has brings there's a dog in it as well. There's Bruno. There's a, is sort of a basset hound, I believe, <laughs> and the triplets of Belleville who are. Are singers, uh, in a, in a kind of music hall singers, uh, in close harmony singers, and uh, the part of the reason I think this film is part of the international appeal is that it uses very little there's very little actual dialogue yeah and yet you never feel like you're at a loss for what's going on other than the fact that it's strangely surreal and uh the the visuals are so peculiar and wonderful it's it's a deeply unique film uh, and and yeah it's it's pretty great the 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 music from it the theme music again bringing it back to music and animation is uh is a song that I I still love and will occasionally just throw on just for fun because it just Gives me, uh, I, it just—I can hear the tune in my head right now. It just gives me, gives me real joy.
0: Yeah, well, well, Belleville, as it turns out, I think is the hometown of Django Reinhardt. I think that's where he hailed in, sort of rural France. He came from this this village, Belleville. So that, of course, became the inspiration for uh, the triplets' music. It, it's got that that lively French cafe swing orchestra kind of feel to it all throughout. So it's it's very peppy. Um, you know, it's it's so well integrated, but I love the kind of that weird angular look of the characters and the and the the background design and and everything. It, it, in in the sense, it, it reminded me a little bit of a very obscure animated film that's only kind of resurfaced in recent years. It, it's from the early '80s called Twi- Twice Upon Twice Upon a Time, which was uh, produced by George Lucas uh, using some of his Star Wars money to to fund some independent film projects. And it's a very odd kind of an adult in. Um, animated quest story that um uses like real photographic backgrounds and characters are made some of them are made with like cut out materials and some of them are animated on sales it's it's a real kind of mixed media animated film that for whatever reason uh lucas funded the making of it but uh there's real no release or promotional push for it because the studio that was created to make this film kind of went under shortly after so the film kind of fell into obscurity and only now has gotten uh, reissued and shown on TV and and stuff like that after, I think it got a few airings on cable in the eighties and early nineties and then vanished again. So it's nice to see that uh, get resurrected, but I I feel like that was an indirect uh, influence on, on Belleville because it just has that same kind of weird mix of like industrial and, 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 um, and pastoral kind of imagery and, and uh, the kind of, you know, the power of the imagery over, over, just incessant dialogue and voice work, uh, I think is a trait of that film as well. So, uh, it's, it's nice to see that illusion or the, sorry, that influence kind of carried on. And, um, I just want to quickly mention another Shomay film. He, he took a, an unproduced screenplay by, I believe, um, uh, Jacques Tati, the great uh, French uh, comedian. Sure. and I made uh, the Illusionist. I don't know how. Oh, I, yeah. Sure to see it, but yeah,
1: I have, but not for a long time. It's it's
0: like a it's, it's basically a Tati film only done in animation, and it, it's it's fairly brilliant. Where this uh, French magician winds up on a remote Scottish island, and and uh, in the 1950s, and it's it's just a it's it's it'll be really slow for kids. Uh, it's not a kids movie at all, I don't think. But uh, if if you like slapstick, uh, that kind of very dry French form of slapstick comedy, uh, you, that one's uh, will be right up your alley. So before we wrap
1: up, I just want to talk a little bit about Richard Linklater, great American filmmaker uh, from Texas, Austin, Texas, and has done amazing films. His, his Before Sunrise, Before Sunset, uh, Before Midnight uh, series, and of course, Boyhood. Uh, he has directed a lot of great films, independent American films over the years, his most recent Everybody Wants Some. Now, he also has gotten into animation, and his, his two animated films, Waking Life and A Scanner Darkly from 2001 and 2006, respectively, uh, are really interesting and I thought were worth mentioning. They're rotoscopic, which is a kind of animation basically where where the film is shot on, or a film on digital and then animated in post-production, over the top of the sort of existing uh, footage. And uh, it makes for a really dreamlike quality, which is exactly why I think he chose this kind of animation, because the material he he's animating is these stories are quite dreamlike. Waking Life, it feels like a sort of a, a rambling dream with a bunch of characters, some of which have shown up from his other films are showing up here. It's very much a philosophical story uh, and starring Wiley Wiggins and it, it just sort of goes from place to place and it feels like the structure of a dream in a way that not many films have actually accomplished and that's what I think is so special about it. Uh, a Scanner Darkly, I think, is maybe a little less successful. Here he's adapting a Philip K. Dick novel and he's trying He's sort of going for a more thriller kind of uh, film, uh, starring Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., and Winona Ryder, uh, and Woody Harrelson. And it, it uh, I don't know if it entirely holds together, but it's a really interesting uh, experiment. And again, the rotoscopic
0: animation brings something special to it that kind of where the visuals really stay in your head. Well, rotoscoping is one of the oldest techniques. There is an animation. I mean, the Fleischer brothers were doing it in the silent days. If you watch an old Coco the Clown cartoon – it's actually Dave Fleischer uh, was running around in a clown costume and then they just drew over him. And, and that's why it looks so lifelike in terms of the movement and everything and not quite so cartoony as um, later just hand-drawn stuff that was done from you know memory or whatever um, would look like. And uh, then Ralph Bakshi used it quite a bit in the 70s, like in Lord of the Rings. Right, and Amer- sure. American pop. Um, his, his ode to the history of American music, uh, uses a ton of rotoscoping. I, I find a little too much of that, the drawn over stuff. I find it a little hard on the head after a while, but, um, but the way it's used here where they, they film it live action and then they, they draw over it with computers, I just find it's a lot in in a weird way. It's a way more imaginative because the possibilities are even further in terms of what you can do with color and creating backgrounds and dropping things into it and out of it. Um. And for something like a Philip K. Dick story, it's perfect. Plus, you don't have to build sets or, or props or anything like that. You just draw them on the screen, and there they are. And uh, you know, the stream of consciousness uh, of, of waking life—it's it's just amazing how they segue from one segment to, an, to the next. Uh, you can do that kind of seamless thing with things that were filmed months apart, and uh, they're uh, they're really brilliant films. That uh, you know, they, they they may not age terribly well, given what what. Uh, in the ongoing development of animation with computers, but um, they, they certainly are interesting artifacts.
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And, you know, it's funny, uh, uh, computer animation is is kind of an interesting thing because I wouldn't consider necessarily the animation in Sausage Party to be particularly memorable, but, but it does, it works. You know, it works for that kind of film. And, and certainly I think Pixar has pushed the genre in a way that really... Really uh, uh, where it's just the joy of the film is partly is much to do with the way it looks. But as I said, for me, it's it's partly the look and partly the content and partly the music that always gets me. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to one of the one of the shows that I've discovered most recently on television. And that's Rick and Morty, which is an amazing (laughs) show uh, that I just love. Absolutely, unreservedly. Uh, kind of strangely built on the relationship between Doc Brown and Marty in uh, in Back to the Future, but it's a it's a much darker and more adult and a uh, deeply deeply hilarious uh, animated uh, series. So so yeah, uh, I think that that completes
0: my list. I, are you a fan of Rick and Morty? Yeah, I find I have to space out my viewings of the episodes because they kind of wear me down. Yeah, fair they're, enough. They're so I mean, I guess it, it gets a little less manic, but the the first the, the early episodes are super manic and I it just it's to the point where I I had a hard time kind of following the thread of what was happening. <laughs> yeah. Um but you know, I appreciate that. It makes you watch more closely. Um and, uh, you know, I love the character and the situations. The fact the anything can happen aspect of, of the show and the, the more adult uh, take on the material, I, I think is uh, is terrific. I mean, it's Mark Harmon who made Community, I think, is behind it. Um, or maybe, yes, and, Mark Harmon, his name, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I, I loved Community. I know, I know he's got another series where it's kind of like fantasy, uh, um, kind of sword and sorcery kind of stuff taken from just conversations and D&D games and that sort of thing, which I haven't gotten around to, but uh, I certainly like to see more of that. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to correct my uh, identification of comedy genius Dan Harmon as Mark Harmon star of summer school and, uh, and other films uh, that are probably best forgotten. Um, my name is Stephen Cook. <laughs> I'm Karsten Knox. And I hope you enjoyed our look at some more offbeat uh, examples of animation. Uh, as always, you can find Lends Me Your Ears on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears uh, and by email at Podcast at gmail.com. Also, you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E And I'm at Karsten Knox C-A-R-S-T-E-N-K-O-X And uh, if you like the show and want to throw a few dollars our way you can always go visit our Patreon page and as always thanks to the folks at CKDU-FM for the facilities and Village Soundcast Network for the technical expertise Lensmere
1: Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.